Chapter 15 Without knowing it at the time, I was in a remarkable position in 1928 and one that gave me a big advantage over my competitors. As a contractor, I was able to see all the weaknesses of the earth-moving machinery then in use, and as a manufacturer, I was able to do something about it. The rooter, the hopper wagons, the bottom dump carts, the bulldozer, and the semi-drag scrapers were all products of what the contractor in me demanded and got from me, the manufacturer. They were built exclusively to help me get ahead as a contractor, but they were to become the foundation of our company. I was in no position to recognize that at the time because suddenly my contracting business began booming in all directions. First, I was low bidder on the contract to dig an irrigation canal known as the Patterson Ditch. I've never been told so, but I've always suspected that I got the contract because no one else wanted to bid. It was a strange job, the first of its kind, calling for a canal that would carry a goodly river of water, not through a hill, but up and over it. This meant I had to dig a series of ditches along a difficult hillside, with each ditch being a stage higher than the last, with pumping stations to boost the water up a step at a time. While I had the Moss Avenue factory on overtime turning out the ditch diggers and the hoppers to carry away the overburden for the Patterson job, a highway contract at Oroville came through. I had bid high on that one just to sort of keep my name in front of the contracting public, and when I got it, I began to worry. To be low bidder on two jobs in a row meant that the other fellows, older and wiser than I, had seen some difficulties I didn't know about. I could only guess at that. But of one thing I could be sure, they hadn't deliberately bid high just to throw the work my way. I talked it over with Ray Peterson and Carlton Case, and we agreed that there were too many uncertainties ahead to risk a costly enlargement of the Moss Avenue factory. At the same time, we didn't want to buy machinery from other manufacturers when we could, as we like to say, roll our own for half the cost of the tailor-maids. So we improvised our expansion, as we have had to do ever since. Ray moved our growing engineering department out of the factory and into a construction trailer parked in the front yard. Every time an engineer has to use a slide rule, complained Ray, he has to step outside for elbow room. Outside was not much better. Pop Cook, my best turret lathe operator, claimed he had to push his two-ton lathe out of the driveway whenever a truckload of steel came in or a new machine went out. Harry Andrews, who was my whole business department, was moved into the parlor of the Italian family across the street, and there he had to fight payrolls, bill collectors, and the smell of garlic sauce and spaghetti. Evelyn always had 2 a.m. coffee ready for those of us working through the night, gallantly claiming that as long as she had to heat the baby's bottle, a few gallons of coffee was no extra chore. In the midst of all this, I got a call from Ordway, Kaiser's top man. We've snapped the boom on a power shovel, he said. Can you weld it together, or do we wait three months for a new boom? I'm on my way, I said. This was the chance to redeem myself for the hopper fiasco that I'd been praying for. I loaded a truck with welding equipment and drove 200 miles through the night to the site of the ailing power shovel. Once on the job, I was able to get in a sincere apology for my arbitrary attitude at the 
time my hoppers had failed to work in mud. I also made sure that when I finished welding together the snapped boom, I left them with a machine that was stronger than it had been in the first place. A few days later, I got a call from Kaiser. Nothing important, he said. I cracked the aluminum head of my motorboat engine that I need here in San Francisco Bay. Can you fix it? He knew how busy I was. I didn't think he was calling me away from my shop and construction business just to repair an engine. I drove to San Francisco, taking with me my own arc welding system that I had developed to handle aluminum, about as tricky a metal to weld as there is. He sat in the cockpit of the boat, talking while I worked on the motor. As I figured, he had some bigger deals in mind, deals I might never have heard about had I failed to do him a favor. When I finished the job, we went for a trial spin. He was a demon driver, always trying to coax 100 miles an hour out of a boat designed to do half that. We looked over the site where the work was beginning on the San Francisco Bay Bridge while he rattled off a dozen more projects he had in mind. With the boat bouncing in the chop, I must have nodded my head several times because I found myself with more subcontracts. By the time I got back to Stockton late that night, I felt like the little dog that chased freight trains and finally caught one. Now what? In adding the subcontracts for Kaiser to my own work, I had about four times as much as I could handle. My only out was to design some machines to do four times as much work. Kaiser had the patents on my telescoping scrapers, so I couldn't build them though I knew he would be glad to let me rent as many as I could use on his subcontracts. That would help me there, but for my own contracts, I needed more. The most serious problem facing me in building a big machine was lack of power. The tractor manufacturers had some notion their machines were as powerful as they could get. Back when I was building Kaiser's factory and he was getting ready for the job at Eureka, he had tried to interest a tractor company in building a machine with diesel power. The amount of interest we aroused was notable for its absence. I'll build my own, said Kaiser, and did, installing a diesel in the frame of an old tractor. I finished the job on this first diesel tractor by equipping it with my electric generators. For a while up there in Eureka, we were really moving dirt, proving we were on the right track. What we had overlooked was that the diesel, as then built, was a stationary engine. Its separate cylinder blocks couldn't take the banging and wrenching they got in an uncushioned tractor. We blew out so many pistons we had to scrap the engine. And the tractor people, instead of noting the superior performance of the diesel while it lasted, pointed to its failure and dropped the subject with relief. Eventually, they were forced to accept the diesel, but not in time to save me then. Then one night, deeply worried about all the contracts I couldn't fulfill, I got down on my knees and prayed. Don't let me down now, Lord. I've got all this work, and if you let me down, I'm ruined. <laughs> right there, I saw my mistake. Strike that out, Lord, I hastened to say. I didn't mean that. I'm not asking you not to let me down. I'm asking you to help me not let you down. I'm not asking to use you. I'm asking you to use me. That had been my trouble all along. 
All wrapped up in my own petty problems, I had once more begun to think I was working for myself instead of the Lord. I slept well that night, and when I woke up, I had the answer to my problem. It didn't look like much of an answer at first. It was that old burrow engine I had used while pulling stumps for my brother Bill nearly 20 years earlier. It had been weak and erratic, and it had only one cylinder, but when I rigged my cables and sheaves right, it could sure pull stumps 20 times its weight. With that for a starter, one thought led to another fast. The electric motors I had used on the gondola were 10 times as powerful as that old burrow engine. I had used them with rack and pinion gears, but suppose I had geared them to cable winches and rigged the cable through some sheaves over my buckets. Why, with that kind of an arrangement, I'd be able to lift loads with all the efficiency and power of an electric hoist. Instead of using five telescoping buckets to pick up 20 tons, I could pack 20 tons into one bucket and lift the whole works with the press of a button. It was a fine idea, but the tractor hadn't been made that could pull a scraper with a 20-ton bite. I had to compromise by building a semi-drag scraper that could carry about eight tons in the bucket while dragging three more tons ahead. While I was at it, mindful of the trouble Kaiser had had in shoving mud out of my hopper wagon and the remedy I had thought up of a powered tailgate, I added one of those to the scraper. The finished machine had only half the capacity of the telescoping scraper, but because of its compactness, ease of handling, and the speed with which it could be loaded and dumped, it moved twice the tonnage on long hauls and up to five times the tonnage on short hauls. That one machine made obsolete all the patents I had sold Kaiser. In designing the cable-controlled scraper, I began a practice of working with my engineers that is still in effect. I drew up a plan for the cable controls and handed it to them. They got out their slide rules and figured out why it wouldn't work. I got my pencil, figured out why it would, and handed it back. I liken it to a chess game in which my engineers will checkmate my moves with every technical trick at their command, or I'll checkmate them with a few moves that aren't always in the books. Back and forth we go. Give a little and take a little. When I've got a good design, I can win in a week. When I've got a poor design, they win, but it takes them longer. That's what makes us unique. We've got the only engineering department in the country where the president of the firm wears out as many erasers in the drafting room as his engineers. While Ray Peterson put the factory on double shift to turn out cable-controlled scrapers, I started to catch up on the construction jobs. I didn't have to look very far to see that I had a serious problem. The Oroville job would need every new scraper I could build, while the Patterson ditch, I just didn't have the machines to swing it. The only bright spots were my subcontracts for Kaiser where I was leasing his equipment. At this point, my old friend, Buck Maestretti, came to me in deep trouble. On a big highway job, he had lost his well-worn shirt on the same freak circumstances that would later trap me at Boulder. The test holes on which he had based his bid had shown easy digging over most of the route. And where the holes were, he had found the digging easy, but seldom beyond the diameter of the hole. In between, he had encountered solid rock. 
And by the time he had dynamited and power shoveled his way out of that one, the sheriff was waiting to attach his machines at the other end. Where this hurt me was that he had a lot of my machines on that job, still unpaid for, plus about 10000 in cash I had advanced to help him meet his payroll. I'll admit I was no altruist. I had to keep Buck going in the hope he would come out ahead and pay for the machines. That was one of those deals we could all get into in those days before bankers stepped into big contracts and demanded security more substantial than a handshake. I wish we could do it today. I still think a handshake between Christian men is worth more than all the fine print you can find in 50 pages of contract. It was to work out that way then. Buck still had the machinery while fighting off the sheriff, and his ability and his machines I could use on the Patterson ditch. That would let Buck work his way out of the hole, pay for my machines, and still leave me a profit as the prime contractor on the job. Altruism? Charity? Uh, an easy way to get my money back? Or just good business? I know that Buck did a whale of a good job on the Patterson ditch. He pulled me out, I pulled him out, and the people around Patterson got an over-the-hill canal that has paid for itself many times over. Abruptly, I found myself in a different set of circumstances. As is a feature of the construction business, one minute I was frantically trying to complete four jobs at once, and the next I was faced with a lot of men and machines on my hands and nothing to do. The cable-controlled scrapers had proved so efficient at Oroville that they were completing the road three months ahead of schedule, bringing all of my jobs to a close at about the same time. What I wanted now was something big to prove both myself and my machines and let my competitors know I was really in business. The only job in sight like that was too big, but I wanted it anyway. The California State Highway Department was getting ready to straighten out some of the old highways that twisted around through the mountains between Los Angeles and Bakersfield. The one section still open for bids was a stretch near Newhall, now called the Newhall Cutoff. The old road going north out of the San Fernando Valley had laboriously wound its way over the first range of mountains with a series of dangerous switchbacks. The new road was to cut straight across, slicing through the crest of the ridge with a vertical cut 180 feet deep. While I was wondering how I could swing it, I ran into a member of our church, likewise a contractor, who was also on the lookout for something to do. I thought this was a wonderful chance to demonstrate how a couple of members of the church could cooperate. So we were not long in drawing up a 50-50 partnership, which we named the L&L Construction Company. We put in our bid on the job and got it. From the first day, we were in trouble. The clay and shale that had shown itself to be reasonably soft in test holes dried up and hardened like concrete as fast as we exposed it to the fierce sun. Even after my rooters cracked it, the sharp chunks of shale that were left were doing my scrapers no good. We had to buy two power shovels and bring up my big hopper wagons to do the hauling. To get those big machines to the site, we had to build our own road, which meant bringing in my bulldozers. No matter what we did, though, we got further and further behind, our losses mounting rapidly. My partner was a hard-working man, but 
When he saw his life savings were in danger, he began to go to pieces, storming and scolding on the job, and that didn't help a bit. One day he came up to me in a fine rage. I'll tell you what the matter is with this job, he snapped. You've got too many relatives working on it. Uh-oh, he had me there. On the job were my brother and three brothers-in-law. My wife was assisting my brother Lewis in keeping the books and heading up the construction work were the brothers Jack and Joe Salvador, who counted as members of the family. But I've always been of the opinion that there is no harm in hiring relatives as long as they work twice as hard as anyone else. Another important factor was that in my uncertain progress with chicken one day and feathers the next, my relatives would go without salary a lot longer than I dared ask of others. I was deeply troubled by his attitude. I wanted to get along with him, but I wanted to be fair to my relatives, too. What do you suggest I do? I asked as mildly as I could. Fire him, he said bluntly. All except your brother Lewis. He's the only one who knows the books. Considering the job they were doing, firing them merely because they were related to me did not seem right. As always, I took my problem to the Lord in prayer. My partner is a member of the church, I said. If I fight with him, that would be a fine example of how Christians get along. I'm leaving it in your hands. Show me what to do, Lord, and I'll do the best I can. Two days later, I got a letter from the Southern Pacific Railroad. They were inviting a select group of contractors in whom they had confidence to bid on building an approach for a new railroad bridge across the Susan Bay near Benicia. The old railroad ferry across the Susan arm of San Francisco Bay was to be done away with at last. Deep in trouble as I was with the new haul cutoff, I didn't see how I could bid on another job. Then something reminded me of my prayer, and I thought, Maybe the Lord is using this to answer me. I will see. The Lord invites us to prove him. Bring ye all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be meat in mine house, and prove me now herewith, saith the Lord of hosts, if I will not open you the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing, that there shall not be room enough to receive it. Malachi 3.10 My credit was at low ebb, the word having spread that I was very apt to go broke on the Newhall job. Yet when I asked if I could get credit just in case I won the SP contract, I was told to go ahead and bid. I still didn't think I had a chance. About all the SP knew about me was the work I'd done on their Fresno freight yard, and they had many big contractors, Kaiser among them, with whom they had worked for years. The bids were not made public, but later I did learn that two big contractors and myself were within a few cents of each other. Whether I was the one who had shaved the extra two bits off the job is something I don't know. All I know is that I was awarded the contract. I called a meeting of the relatives. Boys, I've got a job where we don't have to worry about a partner. Everybody except Lewis is going up to Benicia on the new job. We'll settle this business once and for all about whether or not relatives can do the work. I put Howard in charge and gave each of the others the work he was best qualified to handle. If we had been in trouble from the start on the Newhall cutoff, the Susan Bay Bridge approach furnished an instance that was the opposite. 
The railroad approached the bay from the north through a series of hills that sank into salt marshes as they neared the water. It was those salt marshes we were to fill so the bridge could be hung high enough to permit the passage of small vessels. According to the plans of the SP, we were to get the dirt for this fill from a hill that was on their right-of-way, nearly a mile back from the marsh, and it was on that long haul that all bids were based. While the job was getting organized, I commuted on the night train between New Hall and San Francisco, sleeping in a coach one night going up and sleeping in a coach the next night going back. Somebody told me later they had berths on the train, but I was too busy to find that out and too tired to care. I slept all right. One day after we had been in operation about a month, I was watching the hopper wagons go by from the steep, high hill that overlooked the marsh. A couple of men came up who introduced themselves as the owner of the hill and his real estate agent. They were wondering what the railroad bridge and a new highway that was coming through would do to improve property values. Uh, not much for a steep hill like this, I said, doing some fast thinking. But if you'd let me cut it down to size and terrace it for housing lots, you'd sure have something. It didn't take them 10 minutes to see the light of day. The next day, my bulldozers were shoving that hill down to a 50B power shovel that was loading my hopper wagons as fast as they could be brought up. Instead of having a mile haul, we had a haul of only a few hundred yards, and that fill went in there fast. I saved several thousand dollars, and the owner of the hill ended up with a valuable piece of property. Naturally, word of how well things were progressing in Benicia would reach the ears of my partner in Newhall. Now he began to feel that instead of inflicting him with my relatives, I was depriving him of their services. The way things were going in the 180-foot cut, I felt deprived of them myself, but I held my peace. In a series of terraces, we had sliced our way to the bottom of the cut. Now, because it is easier for a power shovel to load a hopper wagon on the terrace below than one on the same level, we had our shovels chewing away one terrace to widen the cut while the hopper wagons hauled away from the step below. It was a slow and painful process, and we saw no way of finishing the job with a loss of less than $100,000. I put my own confidence in God. If He wants you to make money to serve His purposes, you'll make it. If he doesn't want you to have money, he'll take it away, no matter how much you might have. I couldn't understand why my partner couldn't feel the same way, especially after what God did next. One of our big power shovels was being moved from the south side of the cut to the north, taking the only route available for such a cumbersome machine, down through the bottom of the cut and up on the far side. Except it never made it. It stalled out about 2 o'clock in the morning, just as it was entering the cut, blocking traffic in both directions. Some 200 men were working on the night shift when the shovel operator got down and posted his red warning lanterns that closed the cut. He was just hanging the last lantern when the bottom terrace bulged outward and the whole west side let go. I was asleep in a tent when the land side started. The rumble and the shaking of the earth was so great I started up in terror, thinking I was back in the San Francisco quake. Then the terror became even greater as I came to realize what had happened. All of the men on my night shift were out there. 
Our lights had been swept away, but even in the dark, I could see that the 180-foot cut was now nearly half full of crumbled shale. No one could survive under that. I ran, shouting at some men who were standing there as though stricken numb. More men appeared, and we began searching over the debris, hoping to find a few who might not have been completely buried. We found no one. I had the roll called from a timesheet. Every man answered to his name. I couldn't believe it. I think we called the roll ten times before I could realize a miracle had taken place. The timely breakdown of the power shovel had closed the cut to traffic and saved us from any fatalities. A few minutes earlier, the road had been teeming with men. What had happened, we were to learn, was that in reaching the 180-foot mark, we had cut through a layer of oil shale. No one had ever done such a thing before, so not even the best engineers could anticipate the result, though it's in all the books now. With hundreds upon thousands of tons of overburden bearing down on that greased shale, it had simply slicked out from under the pressure, and down had come the whole west wall. No one killed injured, or even scratched. And for my partner and me, it was a complete save. All the rock and shale we had been laboriously dynamiting, rooting, and breaking with power shovels now lay before us in a pulverized heap. In we moved with bulldozers and scrapers, and out went the dirt as fast as the tractors could roll. Instead of the anticipated loss of a 100,000, we did a little better than break even. I thought we had every reason in the world to get down on our knees and thank God. I know I did, nightly, and several times mentally during the course of a day. My partner actually stunned me with an entirely different approach. I hear you made a lot of money on the Southern Pacific job, he said one day. I admitted that the relatives he had objected to had done a credible job for the SP, well, I've talked it over with my lawyer, he said. You got all the profit on that job, so I think I'm entitled to all the profit on this. You took your crew off our job in the middle of the contract, so that makes the Southern Pacific job an extension of the Newhall job. We didn't dissolve any partnership, so I'm entitled to my share. I thought he was out of his mind. I talked it over with Carlton Case, leaving him as astounded as I was. What you did was on your own and within your rights, he said. Your ex-partner hasn't got a leg to stand on. Let him sue, I asked. Let him sue, said Case. But as I walked away, I couldn't seem to accept the idea of what I knew would be a bitter court battle. Not that I'm one to turn away from a fight. Under other circumstances, I've defended myself in court, but here I had my church to think about. I had refused to fight with my partner in the dispute over my relatives, and the Lord had approved and shown me the way out. To start another fight would be to jeopardize the unity of our church, the very thing the Lord had wanted me to avoid the first time. I took my problem to him. I still didn't want to give up without a fight, but his quiet voice said, No. I protested that the right was on my side, that my partner had ordered my relatives fired, and that I had hired another crew to replace them. My lawyer is confident we will win, I argued. You have confidence in your lawyer, I heard. 
how much confidence do you have in me? I was seeing the point. But I had to add, but how can he call himself a Christian and serve as the senior member of the church and still take the money when it's rightfully mine? Going to church doesn't make a Christian, I heard, unless he goes there with an open heart to seek God. Then he seemed to say, you may take your choice. You may place the case in the hands of your attorney, or you may leave it in my hands. In 1 Corinthians 13.1, the Bible says that without love or charity, we become a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. I loved the Lord, and my confidence was in Him. Just the same, I'm ashamed to admit, I wasn't feeling very charitable when I went up to my ex-partner and said, All right, there'll be no lawsuit over this. We'll settle it your way and leave the rest in the hands of the Lord. Then I couldn't help but say, this kind of 50-50 partnership reminds me of the cook who made 50-50 rabbit stew, one horse and one rabbit. Sort of one-sided, but no hard feelings. Having got that off my chest, I felt better. The footnote to the above story is that a year later, after two disastrous contracts on his own, my former partner was wiped out. If the Lord doesn't think you're worthy of having it, he'll find ways of taking it away.